Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the content director and the host of the show. I'm here with Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Always good to see you and to be with you. How are the kids doing? They're doing well. We're just kind of getting to the end of our coronavirus quarantine here yeah, in Florida. Okay. You know, we're like one of the first states that opened back up. So we've been thankfully able to go back to mass, daily yeah, mass. Right. And then we just had our first Sunday mass. And actually, that's a good segue into something I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. Um, most viewers of this show by now will realize that we're no longer producing the daily video masses at Word on Fire. The last one was on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, talk a little bit about this, because I know a lot of people found so much consolation in this. They're disappointed to see we're not going to join for Mass. We can't hear Bishop Barron. We can't hear Father Steve. Why did you make this decision? Well, I mean, first of all, so grateful to everyone who joined in. We had people from over 200 countries around the world. Uh, we had a, a steady audience for the Daily Mass and really a big audience on the weekend. So really grateful to everybody. And it was a service we felt important to do during this time of lockdown. The main reason, Brandon, is that we're not meant to watch the Mass on TV. We're meant to go to Mass. And so uh, we've opened up out here now in California. So we kind of took that as our signal just to encourage people to, to go back. I totally get there are people who are shut in or have trouble getting to Mass and benefited from it. And I'm delighted they did. I'm especially glad that Father Steve got much more exposure. People heard him. I think uh, one of the finest preachers in the country. Um, so all that was good. But we just felt that the goal is finally not to bring people to TV, but to bring them to, to Mass. And so that's, um, that's our hope. Now, I know some viewers here, because they've emailed us, have told us that you know, they still can't go to Mass, their country, their uh, state is still locked down, or maybe you know, they're susceptible to disease, so they can't make it to Mass. Uh, but please know we're going to do all we can to still make some of these resources available to you. Even if we can't have daily Masses on TV, we're still continuing to produce Bishop Barron's preaching in various forms. We've got some new forms coming out soon that you'll hear about. Uh, so we're still trying to proclaim the gospel digitally, even if we can't stream these daily Masses anymore. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, listen, this episode is four years in the making. Um, four years ago, you and I and Father Steve Gruno had some preliminary discussions about the possibility of creating a Word on Fire Bible. And it's finally here. Today, Monday, June 15th, marks the release of this long-anticipated project. So I wanted to spend this episode walking carefully through the thought process behind the Bible, the features, the quality, why this is such a game-changing evangelical resource. But let's back all the way up four years ago. I think it was you, maybe Father Steve with you in conjunction, that first came up with this idea why a Word on Fire Bible? Why is that significant to this Word on Fire movement? Because the Bible is the soul of theology. The Bible is the soul of the new evangelization. The Bible is the heart of everything. So we wanted to bring the Bible forward, but in a way that was really fresh and rich and enticing and involving. We wanted a Bible that you could hand to a, a nun or a, a searcher, a seeker, a skeptic, even a non-believer, and say, hey, here, take a look at this. If you hand a, a typical Bible, you know, which is usually double column pages, little tiny print, even tinier print in footnotes, a lot of impenetrable stuff, frankly, when you just open it up and if you're, you're not really connected to the church, we felt that that wasn't going to work, that we wanted to get the Bible in people's hands, but in a way that would make it very appealing to them. And so, and we'll talk more about this, but the two great Word on Fire values of, of truth and beauty, uh, we wanted both those to be operative. And I would say, Brandon, as part of 
what Vatican II called for, which is a revival of the Bible. Now, we could say some more about it later, why I think that largely has not happened since Vatican II. But I would see this as part of that. It's under that inspiration. You've been following Word on Fire the last few weeks. You've surely seen photos and videos and people talking about this Bible. You can learn more by visiting wordonfire.org slash Bible. That's where you can also get your copy. And I want to emphasize this throughout the show that right now we have three forms of the Bible. We have a paperback version, a hardcover version, and a leather version, which is gorgeous. But for a limited time, we're running a special deal where you can get one copy of the leather and then you get four copies of the paperback to pass out to friends and family. And, and that's the one Bishop Barron mm -hmm. and I are both encouraging people to get. Um, we want this Bible to be an evangelical tool for people who haven't read the Bible, who aren't coming to church, but who want to get into it maybe for the first time. This is, I think, the best way to do it. This is the Bible you want to give to someone who hasn't read the Bible before. Yeah, um, let me say a quick word, Brandon, about that. It's, it's, I call it the Billy Graham principle because Billy Graham always said when he produced a, you know, a book or a, or a tape in his day, uh, he wanted people to listen to it, read it, good, but then give it away. It's a seed now. You know who can benefit from this cassette or from this book. Well, now with this Bible... Sure, get a, a nice leather-bound one. It's beautiful, you know, for your own uh, library. But then get these, was it three or four we're offering? It's four, I huh? think it's four. Yeah, so four of these paperbacks, they're all so beautiful. They don't have the leather cover, but they're, they got all the beautiful features. And you know where to give them. <laughs> you know which of your kids. Or, you know, it could be, often, it, it's a, a child knows which of his parents could really benefit from this Bible. Uh, a grandparent knowing just which grandchild would benefit from this Bible. Whether it's a gift or just like, hey, just hand it to someone. Look, I think you'd like this. Um, so I want this program to be an evangelical program, an evangelical tool for people to use. Well, let me give a little more background description on the Bible itself. So the Word on Fire Bible is actually a series of volumes. We're coming out right now with just the first volume, volume one, which includes the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, along with a massive amount of commentary from Bishop Barron, of course, because it's a Word on Fire Bible, but also from some of the greatest saints and mystics and scholars and artists throughout history. You'll find commentary from the Church Fathers. You'll hear from John Chrysostom, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, but even contemporary writers like John Henry Newman and G.K. Chesterton and Flannery O'Connor. Um, it's just a diverse chorus of voices from throughout the 2,000-year tradition. But then I think uh, the feature that so many people have commented on upon opening it up at any page is the beauty of the artistic aesthetic quality of this Bible. We have works of art spanning the last several hundred years throughout the Bible that illuminate different passages from the Gospels. So we show the artwork, we have a little bit of background on it, and then we specifically call out certain features of the artwork that illuminate the passages. That was done by Michael Stevens, one of the two designers who worked on this project, along with Nick Fredrickson. Um, Bishop, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the material quality of the Bible. You said that the two driving principles where we wanted to produce a smart Bible, and I think that's exhibited through all this insightful commentary. Also, a beautiful Bible, which is exhibited through all the artwork, but we also wanted to produce the highest quality Catholic Bible ever made, and I think we've done it. Anybody who opens it will see that the paper is not you know, the thin, wrinkly paper most people are used to right. with Bibles. It's a thick, glossy paper. It's matte-coated, so the ink stays on the top of the page. Images appear vivid and sharp. 
um, the leather of the leather edition is the highest quality leather you can get. It's if, if you want to get into the nerdy weeds, it's natural, tumbled, full bovine, top grain leather. <laughs> um, most leather Bibles use split grain leather, which tends to deteriorate and crack over time, but this one won't. This one is meant to last for generations. It's the kind of Bible you pass down to your kids and grandkids. And then finally, the binding of this Bible is Smith sewn. That means that the uh, stacks of pages are sewn together. It's the highest level of book binding available. So the pages won't fall out. The Bible folds open flat. So if you have it on your lap or on a table, it won't kind of just close on you while you're reading something. Um, so the material quality, we, we wanted to make it the highest quality Catholic Bible for mass distribution. Did that strike you when you picked it up for the first time, Bishop? It sure did. Uh, I got, I think, an advanced copy of it, oh, many months ago. It didn't have the leather cover, though. It just had the artwork and all. But when I got the, uh, the leather-covered one, <laughs> what struck me was how it engages all the senses. I mean, it, it smells great. You take it out of the box, it smells, and it, it feels great, you know, it, as you hold it in your hands. It, just the feel of the pages, as you say. And all that is, is essential. That's not just peripheral business. The truth and beauty, both principles are at play. The beautiful, I've been reading a lot of um, Dietrich von Hildebrand recently, his great two-volume work on aesthetics. The beautiful is a vehicle by which the soul um, uh, attains contact with God, ultimately. And so it's not just, oh, isn't that nice decoration? Oh, isn't that a nice little uh, feature? No, it's, it's really essential to it that the very beauty of the book, and you know, if, if um, Marcel Proust is right, it's often smell that, that will evoke something for us most powerfully. Well, my hope would be that someone who, who smells this Bible, that maybe years later, just that aroma will call to mind the, the splendor of this text. That's all very much on purpose. And then, yes, the beauty that's all through these pages, pages themselves and the font and the print, but also these reproductions of great works of art with, with powerful descriptions of them, too. Uh, my hope is that that now appeals to the, to the eye and to the imagination. And so the Bible is meant to engage the whole person, which is one reason why we refer to it as a cathedral in print. Same thing when you walk into one of the great cathedrals. It's like all of your senses and your imagination are just engaged. And then your mind as well. The cathedral is teaching you all sorts of things about the biblical view of the world. Philosophy and geometry and, and, all, and theology are all over the cathedral. In a similar way, this Bible, I think, appeals to the senses, the imagination. Um, you know, there, Brandon, I'm getting maybe, I'm, as you say, nerding out of it here, but, you know, my great interest in John Henry Newman, and Newman resisted the hyper-rationalism of his own time, which was an Enlightenment rationalism, in favor of this sort of multivalent approach he called the illative sense, you know, whereby we take in the rational, yes, indeed, but also hunch and experience and witness and, and memory and and sense impression, and all of that contributes to the great act of giving assent when you say, yes, that's true, yes, I believe that. Well, see, I want the, this Bible to have a kind of Newman illative quality. It's all these elements come together, I hope, to convince you of the great truth of uh, what's being conveyed. 
At the risk of sounding grandiose, I think what this Bible brings is an experience. It's something yeah. you experience, not just read. It's not just conveying information on a black and white page. Um, some of the videos of people unboxing the, video, the uh, Bible for the first time, they, they gasp, there's oohs and ahs, oh, look at that, oh, wow. It, it's like entering a great Gothic cathedral where the cathedral you know, displays the glory of God and transcendence. It doesn't just, you don't just read a piece of paper that Jesus is God and he is transcendent and great you experience that fact and all of its luminosity yeah absolutely that's that was what we were going for and uh i think yeah i think i, I don't know if we achieved every bit of that but uh i think it's it's uh, impressive and i hope you know my hope it's it's for my pastoral heart my hope is that it it brings people to christ that it's an evangelical tool that's what we want and that's why we're we're handing out a lot of them to be honest with you more or less free you know if you buy the the one you get all these other ones free so now you sow them as seeds you know you know which soil is most receptive you go sow them as seeds one question a lot of people are asking is about the translation of the Bible. There's about, I don't know, half dozen, dozen translations that have been formally approved by the United yeah. States Conference of Catholic Bishops for personal use, personal study. But for this Bible, we settled on the new revised standard version, Catholic edition. This one appeared in 1989. And what we liked about it is it's received wide acclaim from both academics yeah. and scholars. So it's it's pretty, uh, the NRSV is kind of the standard translation used by those working in biblical scholarship. If right. you take college courses on the Bible, it's probably the one you'll be working with. Um, but it, yet, it's also received an imprimatur from the bishops for personal study, and it's very accessible to people who have never read the Bible before. It's not clunky. Um, the translators say their goal was to, to uh, render the text as literal as possible uh, while only being as free as necessary to make the meaning clear in graceful, understandable English. So mm -hmm. again, our audience, our target audience was people without much experience reading the Bible. So we wanted to choose something that, that they could actually read and, and make sense of. Talk a little bit about the NRSV translation. Yeah, and what you've said, I think, is, is what I would repeat, that it brings together a lot of the qualities that, that we want. So academic rigor, but also readability, uh, something that's in a contemporary form of English, you know, we could get uh, endlessly into the weeds here and, and into translation wars about the Bible. You know, I'm a, I'm a great fan, I think you are too, of the Jerusalem Bible. I, when I was a young priest doing Bible study with adults, I had them buy a paperback of the Jerusalem Bible. Our friend, like Tolkien, was on the uh, editorial board. I think Lewis was involved, wasn't he? And it was Eliot. They, some of the big masters of English, you know, prose and poetry were involved in that. And it is. It's a very poetic text. Scholars quarrel, you know, that it's not accurate all the time, etc. It's maybe a little more challenging to read because it's on the more poetic side. Okay, it's got good points and bad points, like all the other translations. Uh, some people love, you know, the King James or the, or the, you know, more modernized King James. I love King James too. You know, the, the Bible that shaped uh, Abraham Lincoln's prose, it's okay by me, you know, and so beautiful. I, I love sometimes reciting from the King James Bible. But, you know, it's going to put off an awful lot of readers, especially ones that we're interested in, the nuns and the, the seekers and so on. So I thought it was the best compromise. It has the best of all the worlds, you know. Can you quarrel with it? Sure, you can quarrel with them all and say, oh, it's missing this or that. But I think it's, it's all things considered the best one. Well, I'm going to spend the rest of this episode looking at four distinctive features of this Word on Fire Bible. When readers get the Bible and they open it up, 
on the, the opening pages, you'll find an essay from Bishop Barron titled The Bible for Restless Hearts, mm. which lays out the thinking behind this Bible and specifically these four distinctive features. Also, by the way, Bishop Barron has another great essay in there on how to read the Bible. So what tools and what interpretive lenses should someone use when they're coming to the Bible for the first time? That's a great essay in itself. But let's look at these four distinctive features. Um, first one, I've kind of hinted at this a little bit, is that the fundamental purpose of this Bible is evangelical. It's not a study Bible in, in the traditional sense. The goal is not merely to transmit historical knowledge. You know, we were joking before the show, you know, it doesn't answer the question like, who wrote the second part of the mm -hmm. book of Joel or this first Isaiah, second Isaiah? It's not interested in those sorts of questions. The mission of this Bible is primarily to introduce people to Jesus Christ through the Gospels. And it does that by unveiling Christ throughout every verse, every chapter, through artwork, through commentary, and so much more. Um, why do we need a Bible whose purpose is evangelical? Because the whole purpose of the church is evangelical. Everything we do is evangelical. But I'll say this more precisely, Brandon. Um, here's something I find really interesting. If you go back now, before even, let's say before the 20th century, the great Bible scholars are also the great preachers and the great bishops and the great evangelists. So a lot of the voices in our Bible, think of Chrysostom, think of Jerome, think of Origen, think of Augustine, think of Bernard, think of Thomas Aquinas, think of John Henry Newman. These are all great biblical scholars and, and they're bishops, evangelists, and, and so on. In other words, the split that Balthazar and others have bemoaned, that when Christianity split in a way between a more kind of academic, technically theological interest and then this spiritual evangelical over here. That's been, Baltzar thought, it was the greatest disaster in the history of the church. Greater than the 1054 split, greater than the Protestant split in 1517. He thought when these two paths diverged, something was lost. Now, when I was coming of age, and we talked about this a few months ago, the historical critical method, right, that is using kind of rational tools to understand what was in the mind of the, of the human author when a text was composed. That's the stated purpose of historical criticism. Altogether valid, terrific, nothing in the world wrong with it. We need it. But there was a tendency within that method to isolate this sort of very rationalistic, uh, analytical approach. And then, you know, preaching and evangelizing, well, yeah, I guess that's something else. Now, let other people do that. See, and that was fatal, it seems to me, in terms of the biblical revival that Vatican II called for. By including all these figures, like Jerome, Chrysostom, and Augustine, and all the way up to Fulton Sheen, when we were bringing together those who are the scholars of the Bible and the great preachers of the Bible, we're trying to recover this lost integration I would say. Um, I, I think in, in my generation, it's been true now for a couple generations of preachers, we suffered from that bifurcation because we got the historical critical approach, very rationalistic, anal analytical, and so on. And then we're called upon to preach, right? And so very often people would read that and say, oh, oh hmm, okay, that's interesting. Now I got to go preach and I'll, I'm going to do something else when I preach. I want those worlds to come together, you know? And I think the great um, church fathers really exemplify that integration. And that's why we have a heavy dose of church fathers throughout this volume. I think every chapter has one or two quotes from different church fathers. So you get to see how the earliest Christians understood certain passages of the, of the Gospels. It's fascinating. 
All right, a second distinctive feature of this Bible is its accessibility to new readers of the Bible. For people that are just biblically illiterate, they're unfamiliar, maybe they've never even picked up the Bible before. Bishop, I'm thinking of a certain segment of my own millennial generation that grew up taking in lies that, you know, the Bible is just fiction, yeah. Bronze Age mythology, fairy tales, stupid, it's got nothing to share. But then over the last few years, there's been a revival of interest among um, secular thinkers. I'm thinking of Jordan Peterson in particular, who's been you know giving yeah. lectures on the Bible from a mostly non-religious perspective. But now a lot of young people are realizing, wait a second, this, this collection of ancient books isn't as stupid as I thought. It actually has deep multi-leveled meanings behind it. And so now there's a lot of people that are like, I, I want to start reading the Bible for the first time, but I, I don't even know where to go. So we created this with those people in mind. I'm thinking of your commentaries in particular, which answer a lot of the questions that seekers and non-religious people are particularly going to be asking. Um, talk about this dimension of the Word on Fire Bible. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, Jordan Peterson, because I think he's a very interesting uh, case here. As you say, Peterson, who's, I mean, I'm not even sure if you call him a believer in God. That's not clear from his writings and, and speaking. But nevertheless, he's speaking about the Bible in a way that's so compelling that millions of young people, especially young men, are flocking to hear him. In other words, he's unlocking, and to be honest with you, he's unlocking a lot of the things that the church fathers said a long time ago. And when we call it the probably the moral sense of the Bible, so what Peterson might refer to as the psychological meaning of the Bible, the classical people would have called the moral sense, probably. Uh, great, great. I'm in favor. If someone can unlock that for people today and, and have it make sense, terrific. Um, you know, here's one thing, Brandon, that really gets me is the, the critics that you evoke there. So often, oh, the Bible, you know, it's just this naive uh, pre-scientific nonsense. And, you know, these poor people, God bless them, they didn't know what was going on. Um, <laughs> we had hyper-sophisticated, non-literalistic strategies of interpretation on display in Christianity from about the second century, right? You go back to people like Irenaeus, and then you, of course, come up through Origen, who massively had these allegorical and, and richly symbolic readings. Augustine. So from the earliest days, from the earliest days, we had non-literalistic strategies of interpretation. I wonder how many of the critics of Christianity understand that. They tend to read things through the lens of maybe... Maybe no one knows this reference anymore, but the lens of the Scopes Monkey Trial, you know, that is this great debate about evolution, and you have these Yahoo Christians think that, you know, the world is 2,000 years old, and then you got the sophisticated, come on, come on. We've had such sophisticated strategies of interpretation for so long, and it's precisely by calling upon the church fathers, and then coming up to today, those who interpret along the lines of the church fathers, who can introduce people in a very... Uh, intellectually satisfying, but also spiritually uplifting way to the Bible. That's behind a lot of the strategy of this Bible. So we're talking about the four distinctive features of the new Word on Fire Bible, which just released today, June 15th. You can find it at wordonfire.org forward slash Bible. We've covered two already. First, it's evangelical purpose. Second, it's accessibility to new readers of the Bible. 
The third major feature is the illuminating commentary. Now, just to give a little perspective, the total number of words in the gospel is about 88,000. We have 89,000 words of commentary. So there's about a one-to-one -one ratio of commentary to gospel text. So that's how much commentary you get in this one volume. And what I love is it's a chorus of voices from mm -hmm. across the tradition. Uh, it includes many of the names we discussed already, but not just saints and Bible experts and theologians. We also bring in artists literary masters, um, a lot of the people associated with Word on Fire. So think like the pivotal players, people that Bishop Barron has used in his books and his writings over time. I love this because, Bishop, it's like the, you're getting the whole church's perspective on the Bible, and it calls to mind that great phrase that the Bible should be read from the heart of the church. That's what we've tried to attempt with this Bible. Yeah, and I've said that so often, Brandon, to people online who are they're, they're struggling with the Bible or trying to get into it. And I'll say, well, you wouldn't just pick up Macbeth and, and someone say, oh, just, oh, it's great, read it. Well, how many people would, would read Macbeth effectively in that way? I'd say practically no one, unless you're some kind of literary genius. Rather, you'd say, let's, let's bring you into the world of Macbeth. In other words, we're going to read this text probably with a really good commentary, a good teacher guiding you, alive to the whole centuries-long history of interpretation around Macbeth. Maybe we're going to watch now, it's a great thing with Shakespeare lovers, we have all these videos, watch various versions of Macbeth. Watch how great actors and actresses have incarnated those uh, roles. Maybe go on YouTube and get um, Sir Ian McKellen has this famous analysis of the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. Okay, I'm sketching for you what I might do with a bright kid who wants to understand Macbeth. I wouldn't say, here's a text of Macbeth, knock yourself out. No, no, I'd bring him into this world of interpretation, this chorus of voices, as you say, and also those who have actually acted out the text. They've acted out the text of Macbeth. Something very similar with the Bible. Here's what you don't do with the Bible, is hand it to someone and say, just start reading, you'll be fine. I mean, the Catholic Church, by the way, has always balked at that. We've always said that's the wrong way to go about it. We know, by the way, the very best way to read the Bible is in the liturgy, but that's like at the end of the process. You know, we're trying to bring people there that you're going to read the Bible within the liturgy. But in the meantime, that's what the Word on Fire Bible is about, is let's have Origen talk about this passage. Well, how about Augustine, you know, a century or so later, talking about the passage? How about Fulton Sheen, a 20th century evangelist? How about Flannery O'Connor, 20th century wild and woolly writer of fiction? Um, my commentary is coming up out of my own preaching of these texts over many years, uh, trying to address the contemporary audience. All this chorus of voices will help us now to situate and understand the spiritual power of these texts. Reading simply on their own or with just a sort of blandly analytical, rational commentary, I don't think it's going to open up the power of these texts the way they're meant to. Um, and you know, what we're doing, Brandon, in some ways, it's, it's as old as the hills. I mean, this goes back to the early days of the church, up in the Middle Ages, the kind of uh, gloss upon sacred text. You have the sacred text, but then you've got the, the gloss on the side, often like literally, and that's what we've done in ours. Literally on the side of the page, you have these illuminating um, readings. Because I think a lot of people, you pick up the Bible, even the Gospels, probably the most accessible part, that's why we started with the Gospels. But even the Gospels, they might read and say, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. Well, if you've got right next to that passage, 
this illuminating sermon from Jerome, or you've got this allegorical interpretation from Origen. You've got Augustine's still fresh. Augustine is like, I don't mean this irreverently, he's like the Beatles. You hear the Beatles music, and if they broke up 50 years ago, it still sounds like the freshest fish on the market, right? That's to me, when you read Augustine's commentaries, they just leap off the page at you. I think that's a much better way now for someone who's seeking and wondering to open up this, this perhaps mysterious text. Well, the fourth and final distinctive feature of the Bible that I wanted to highlight is its distinctive beauty. We've talked a little bit about the artwork, the breathtaking quality, material quality of each of these Bibles, but I want to hone in on what Pope Francis calls the via pulchritudinis, the way of beauty, because the beauty of this Word on Fire Bible is not just to convey an experience of awe at how beautiful these things are. It's meant to be a way to lead you to the source of all this beauty. You've spoken over the years about how beauty is often the most powerful lure toward the good and the true, especially today with relativism at play, people reject the good and the true, but beauty can capture someone and then take them down this way. Talk about how that works with this Word on Fire Bible. You know, I related first, Brandon, to my own life. Um, I go back to when I was a little kid learning how to read and you're in first grade second grade third grade and you're you're reading and the books in the beginning have lots of pictures and a little bit of text then as you move along the text gets more ample and the pictures get smaller i remember vividly i believe i was in fourth grade when we were handed a book that had no pictures it was all text well and i I, what how are you in fourth grade or like eight or nine or something i remember thinking well, no, I, I, I don't, I don't like, I miss the pictures. I, I like the pictures. Now, I spent my whole life reading books. I mean, so I've ruined my eyes doing it. I've spent my whole life reading books. Uh, but I still have a little bit of that nine-year-old consciousness in me that, that kind of misses the pictures because the pictures appeal, as I was saying earlier, to other dimensions of the self and the personality. And it, in my experience, they always enhance like, you know, you and I are, I'm still reading it very slowly, N.T. Wright's giant New Testament in its world, I think it's called, which is chock full of text, but also chock full of pictures. And I love that. As I, I have it in my chapel, and so I'm reading it as I, I pray. And, um, I, you know, I might read a section, but then I just, I'm savoring the map on that page. I'm savoring that photograph of Corinth. I, I'm savoring, hey, that cool picture of the, what the temple was like, you know. That's always appealed to me. And so our Bible is filled with text and commentary, but also with pictures. Because with the pictures, let's say it's Rublev's Trinity. Um, you know, read Augustine on the Trinity. Read the De Trinitate. Read Thomas Aquinas on, on imminent relations within the dynamism of the Trinitarian life. Great. Terrific. But look at that icon by Rublev. Boy, that's going to open up the Trinity in a way that the text never will. It just won't. Uh, read about the temple, but then look at that diagram of the temple and imagine Jesus walking into that temple. That'll tell you a truth about it you'll never get from the text. So that's my Newman or von Hildebrand side. I, I think there's a, there's a role, indispensably important, cognitive, epistemic role played by the beautiful, by the pictorial, etc. And, and that's what I wanted to, to uh, be on display in this Bible. 
I think there's over 40 works of art in this Bible. Everyone from Caravaggio to Rembrandt to Raphael, Michelangelo, Monet. Um, so it kind of spans the range of the yeah. artistic periods as well. It's just gorgeous. It's beautiful just to flip through even before you start reading the actual text. So again, websites wordonfire.org slash Bible. Get your copy and some more to pass out. Mm -hmm.